Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another session in celebration of the 250th anniversary of the Department of English Literature. There we are, writers, readers, and readers, and critics, all the way from 1762 to the present. 1762, that was then, and you'll recall a couple of weeks ago, if you were in this room, that I suggested to Susan Manning she should connect then and now, which rather spooked her because there was 250 years of work to do. We're coming at that question another way tonight. We will go all the way back, I think, to 1762 again, but we're looking specifically this time at the Edinburgh Review, and we couldn't have better company in which to do it. I'll introduce the speakers in sequence, starting with then. And the then corner, we have Professor William Christie from the University of Sydney, although I say that um, with almost scepticism, because so much of William's work is concentrated in the clue place, I almost think of him as being one of us, since perhaps wish fulfillment. But Will's books, as well as a very well-received biography of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, they include uh, dealing with Francis Jeffreys' voluminous, interminable, and indecipherable correspondence with the Carlyles, which William published in an edition two or three years ago. There is also a book about the Edinburgh Review, which has got the memorable title, a book about Edinburgh, about romanticism and the Edinburgh Review, subtitled Mammoth and Megalonics. I've been practicing in front of the mirror to get that mega mumble in exactly the right form. That's the then part of it, and we'll invite Will, for my sake at least, to tell us a good deal about the past history of the Edinburgh Review, which is a bit we don't really know. The bit we really do know is, is Dr. Alan Gillis, who's in the now corner, and is, as you know, somebody who bestraddles the world of literary culture, both as a poet who's produced four distinguished volumes of sometimes award-winning verse, but is also a critic of literature, working in the critical side of the department, the author of a book on Irish poetry in the 1930s, for example. And just to prove that rather than a mere colossus, he is some kind of colossal tripod, if I may so express it, he is another foot in the editing side as the current editor of Edinburgh Review in its present incarnation. Um, there is a great deal more could be said about both today's speakers, but I'll let Will start. If need be, I will disappear briefly to shut up the group next door, and I'll invite the head of department who's got more authority to do it for me. Thank you. We look forward very much to listening to Will and to Alan. Please welcome them with me to start. I wasn't allowed to put the, the, the title Mammoth and Megalonics at the front uh, of the title of the book, because the publisher complained that no one would understand what it meant. I was allowed to attach it rather apologetically at the end. So uh, the book that Randall's talking about is the end review in the literary culture of Romantic Britain, Mammoth and, uh, Mammoth and Megalonics. It's from a letter by, by Byron, George Gordon and Lord Byron, uh, where he was surprised, turning up at a dinner party, to find a critic and a poet sitting next to each other. And he kind of fantasized about the point at which both critics and poets would become ultimately curiously and culturally redundant. And then he said he had this vision of a mammoth, a mammoth and a megalonic sitting together, both of them in a curious way, uh, already passé. I don't know if I'm the mammoth or the megalonics, but as we are both passé, Alan, 
<laughs> it doesn't matter very much. But I'll start with then. And I'm going to start earlier even than 1762, which is the date from which the 250th birthday, of course, takes uh, its meaning. I'm going to start, in fact, in 1755 to 1756, because it's often forgotten that there was a, an earlier Edinburgh Review before the one in which I've spent a lot of years uh, researching and the one that carries the reputation from the 19th century. The first Edinburgh Review was the child of the Select Society and the Scottish Enlightenment. It was produced anonymously oh, sorry, by those characters and a few more as I say, in 1755. And it was an unapologetically nationalist gesture. It was conceived to demonstrate the progressive state of learning, and I'm quoting now, the progressive state of learning in this country by giving a full account of all books published in Scotland within the compass of half a year. It was to be produced six-monthly. It occurred to some gentlemen that at this period, when no very material difficulties remain to be conquered, which is an extraordinary statement, an extraordinary kind of uh, talking about the sort of material complacency of, of uh, Scotland in the middle of the 18th century, the showing, sorry, the showing men the gradual advances of science would be a means of inciting them to a more eager pursuit of learning, to distinguish themselves and to do honour to their country. With this view, the present work was undertaken. And like moderatism itself, the new review would be an expression of victory, to quote Richard Sher, over the barbaric Scottish past in the name of a modernising Scottish future. An expression of victory over the repressive conditions and obstacles that had prevented Scotland from realising its full literary and scientific potential. The moderates saw themselves as using learning to fortify the nation against what Hubler called a violent and unchristian zeal. A violent and unchristian zeal. And in one sense, of course, I had to get Hubler into this lecture, if only for the sake of the birthday, but it was Hugh. Blair was one of the uh, original writers and editors, joint editors of the first Edinburgh Review. And in fact, Blair himself, in that 1755 number, reviewed Francis Hutcheson's system of moral philosophy as a way of establishing both the ideology and the genealogy of the Scottish Enlightenment, as we call it. Sadly, the second number of the Edinburgh Review, this first Edinburgh Review, would also be its last. This was in part because the forces of darkness were not nearly quite so easy to overcome as it happens. And in fact, the years during which the first Edinburgh Review was being introduced were years in which there was a movement within the Church of Scotland to try and indict both David Hume and Lord Keynes for infidelity. With the publication of the review, there was an outcry in the periodicals that were then in print, 
And in part, at least, in response to this outcry, it was decided amongst the members of the original group to choose what they called tranquility over the kind of political controversy that their review had begun. But the failure of the review itself was a good deal more complex than this strategic and arguably faint-hearted retreat might suggest. And the truth is that the cultural conditions necessary for the success of a periodical review simply did not obtain at the time. There were, for one thing, far too few books appearing in Scotland at the time. And this is something that Adam Smith recognised in a letter he wrote to the original authors of the Edinburgh Review in the second number, the second and final number, in a letter that proved to be uh, a kind of obituary. This country, he says, which is just beginning to attempt figuring in the learned world, produces as yet so few works of reputation that it is scarce possible that a paper which criticises upon them chiefly should interest the public for any particular time. We don't produce enough to justify having a review. And Smith's long letter exhorts the reviewers to spread their net more widely, recognising that a truly enlightened enterprise needed to be, to be cosmopolitan not just in its ideals, but in its practices, in its coverage as well. What they needed to do, argues Smith, is recognise that England and France were the centres of cultural production in the middle of the 18th century, and to include them as part of their review of culture. What Scotland needed, in other words, in the middle of the 18th century, what Adam Smith's letter implicitly demands, was not a review, but works of reputation to review. What they needed was the original. And I want to set up that distinction uh, for our conversation uh, this evening as a whole. We have to remind ourselves that a review, and Edinburgh takes that title, is something that is contingent upon the existence of an already healthy intellectual and creative culture. It is essentially secondary in its relationship to cultural productivity and cultural creativity. By the end of the 18th century, as it happens, the cultural conditions necessary for the success of a periodical review did at last obtain. And in a sense, this is where the story really begins, or at least this is where my story really begins. It begins in 1802, at the second attempt to have an Edinburgh review. This one. The Edinburgh Review or Critical Journal. And again, I want to move back into these kinds of important tensions and dualisms, uh, the critical journal uh, is the way in which it declares, it announces itself and its relation to a culture. Its position is self-consciously critical. 
It's launched in October 1802, and it's launched by a distinct and marked set, I'm quoting Henry Coburn, a distinct and marked set of energetic and talented but politically disfranchised young, young Scottish Whig lawyers. Those, at least. They're our main players, our dramatis personae. Francis Jeffrey, Francis Horner, John Archibald Murray, uh, John Allen, Henry Broom, and a number of other characters. And in fact, it was launched at the instigation of one member of the group, the Reverend Sidney Smith, who was neither a Scot nor a lawyer, visiting the capital at the time. It happened, said Henry Coburn famously, it happened to be a tempestuous evening. And I have heard Geoffrey say that they had merriment of the greatest storm that they were about to create. With all the thrill of conspiracy. In fact, the accounts differ very widely as to how the review began and to who exactly was involved at this original and planning stage. And the story of the tempestuous evening, which may well be apocryphal, actually suits the imagery of the evening if it didn't, in fact, occur. Because that's precisely what happened. The storm that Henry Coburn recalls, however apocryphal, did indeed take place at the time. The storm that was anticipated, eventuated, and the clever, scathing, but well-informed reviews saw the Edinburgh erupt into the intellectual life of the early 19th century. Before the end of the first year, Francis Jeffrey had been installed as editor by Archibald Constable, and the review was on the way to becoming both a successful publishing venture and a cultural phenomenon. The success of the enterprise derived in part from the social and ideological coherence of that original group of intellectuals. And it was precisely the geographical and intellectual distance from the larger politically and economically dominant London that gave the Edinburgh, sorry, to gave to Edinburgh's review, I should say, its critical advantage or vantage point. This town, I am convinced, wrote Sidney Smith, is preferable to all others for such an undertaking. From the abundance of literary merit it contains and from the freedom which at this distance they can exercise towards the wits of the South. It begins not just as a critical journal but openly antagonistic. The first periodical in Britain, devoted exclusively to publishing reviews, had been in 1749, the monthly review. So in fact, the first Edinburgh Review was a very early example when the form itself had yet to have been set, to have been organized. This was followed in 1756 by the Critical Review, managed by the Scottish novelist Tobias Smollett. And many more reviews would follow as publishers became more and more reliant 
upon reviewing and reviewing itself, became more central to the network of ancillary institutions that this new and accelerating publishing industry needed uh, and required. From the beginning, reviews were also engaged in the culture of ideas and ideologies. Ideas, information, opinions were the social currency of the expanding public sphere of the 18th century. And by the early 19th century, the production and consumption of knowledge in Britain's thriving lecture and print culture testified to an economic investment in knowledge per se. And the Edinburgh Review, accordingly, conceived of itself, and I'm quoting the review, conceived of itself as among the legitimate means by which the English public both instructs and expresses itself. Because along with the other periodical reviews, the Edinburgh mapped and modified the various emerging knowledges of the 18th century. Philosophy, sorry, natural philosophy or science, historiography, anthropology, foreign policy, political economy, education. In ways that participated in and fueled the political and cultural wars that would become so divisive after the French Revolution. So if we take any one issue, and I think it's very important when we're looking at the Edinburgh Review then and now to make some really clear distinctions between the kind of work that's being done, uh, that's being attempted and achieved in the different Edinburgh Reviews of the different period. If we take, as a typical example, I happen to be working on, sorry, um, the 11th volume, number 22 of the Edinburgh Review, the kinds of things that the Edinburgh saw itself, or over which, to put it another way, the Edinburgh was attempting to establish some kind of cultural authority. We realise immediately both the multidisciplinary and to some extent cross-disciplinary nature of what they were trying to achieve. It's important, especially when we turn around and start to look at what the Edinburgh Review wants to do with literature itself, to recognise that it had other business that it was pursuing. It's especially important for us, if, uh, and I'm assuming that most people here are involved in literature at some level or other, to recognise, as the Edinburgh itself recognised, that literature was only one of a number of cultural pursuits at any particular moment of society. So that we are, and in, in the parenthesis, of course, these, these are the authors and, and, and the books that they are reviewing in that particular uh, number of the Edinburgh Review. So we've got astronomy, we've got literature, biography, travel, entomology, social history, electricity, historiography, political economy, colonial affairs, foreign policy. It is, as I say, the multiplicity uh, of these things that is as important a part. One of the things that I am currently involved in at the moment is establishing a large Edinburgh Review website uh, in an effort to try and establish at once this multiplicity, but at the same time the relations between, the homologies, if you like, between the various kinds of cultural production that are coming under the surveillance of the Edinburgh itself over which they are attempting, as I say, to establish or impose 
their authority at the time. As it happened, and this is something else that's trying me at the moment, as it happened, the Edinburgh, the kind of intelligent public, and I say that with quotation marks because it was the, the sort of phrase that they would use at the time, uh, the kind of intelligent public that was invoked by these periodicals was already breaking down. Breaking down into distinct areas of economic and class interest and of amateur and academic specialisation. Each with its own dedicated organ of expression or instruction. The Edinburgh's dominance with the quarterly review of ideas, information and opinions in the thriving periodical culture that it, it inaugurated marked a late moment before the intelligent public would cede custodianship of knowledge to the various specialists. It was the last moment when a journal could aspire to be comprehensive in this way. There are all sorts of problems, all sorts of gaps, if you like, in the Edinburgh's knowledge. And they were controversial at the time, and they've remained that way ever since. Um, for one thing, it didn't spend nearly enough time on theology for a lot of their contemporaries. And they were notorious for their lack of interest, their indifference to the theological and religious issues. But there were other gaps uh, in what they were able to cover. But otherwise, I think you can see from just this one example the extent of their aspiration. Um, and it is important, I think, to recognise this. Okay. It was the changes to reviewing practice. that occurred under the Edinburgh Review that allowed both the Edinburgh and more generally the large periodical review to establish the kind of domination that it had, or to which it aspired, at least in the early 19th century. And just briefly I'll run through the distinction uh, of the work that they were doing in the Edinburgh itself. The first and most obvious one, the one that they announced in their opening number, was their selectivity. The Monthly and the Critical had published monthly and tried to discuss as many publications as possible. The Edinburgh published only quarterly with a determination, and I quote, to be distinguished rather for the selection than for the number of its articles. Already in the process, of course, of selecting uh, from culture what it took to be significant cultural incursions, it is already constructing uh, a kind of culture for its readers. It's already making the kinds of choices and limiting the kinds of reading that uh, its, um, its readers are, uh, or can be made available to its readers. Another thing was the remuneration. Archibald Constable paid well. Ten guineas a sheet in the first instance, and this went up and up over the years of Francis Jeffrey's editorship. And not only did Jeffrey boost payment to individual contributors, he'll often pay up to fifty pounds for uh, for the same sheet, which is to say sixteen pages, 
um, that he also negotiated with the publishers for the original contributors, or the original conspirators, I should say, to get a dividend. So from 1809 onwards, they were not only profiting from what they wrote, they were profiting from the commercial success of the thing. In some ways, the most important aspect of its financial success was the mythology that it generated. It was recognised at the time as hugely, it's rather like, uh, it's rather the same as in the case of, of, of Walter Scott. Uh, less the money than the knowledge of the money. Everybody recognised the extent of its financial success and it was a part of the myth uh, of the Edinburgh Review itself that it, was, it could afford to be so generous. In the 1820s, before Geoffrey actually gave up the Edinburgh Review, I calculated he was making up to £3,000 a year from his review as editor, as contributor, and, as, and, and working his dividends, which is, I think you agree, an enormous amount of money uh, in the 1820s, um, about £200,000 a year, roughly, roughly. Uh, as, as an equivalence. Uh, that was just from his editing, nothing, um, not from his, his practice as an advocate. He was probably making as more, uh, again, uh, as one of Scotland's most successful advocates. Um, anyway, there was also the enforced professionalism. You had to take the money. As strange as this may seem to us, of course, it was a sore point in the early uh, 19th century. Geoffrey, and Constable, but mainly Geoffrey, insisted that if you contributed, you accepted the money. If you know anything, for example, about Byron's history, you'll know that the whole issue of the, uh, of, of the status that comes with the refusal of money and how important it is, particularly for someone, an aristocrat like Byron, not to dirty their hands with financial transactions. Um, this was something that the Edinburgh Review insisted on from the beginning. If we're talking about the beginning of uh, a kind of rigorous professionalisation, there is nothing more effective than compulsory payment, which you have to accept, whether you like it or not, because we're all accepting it. You can't be an exception. Then there was the review essay itself. Under the editorship of Geoffrey, the book review gradually expanded, became longer and longer. It became more and more, in other words, of an essay, less and less of a review. In one sense, it always had been. What is also distinguished about the kinds of things that the Edinburgh Review is writing is the way in which the books themselves become a mere occasion for a meditation on some aspect of contemporary culture or contemporary intellectual endeavour. If you see the way that the Edinburgh viewers scramble around for any possible to text to give them an opportunity to talk to something that they take to be really urgent, something that people need to know about, you'll realise the extent to which the notion of the book review really has to be contained within scare quotes. What we're dealing here, of course, with a, is with a whole culture under review. The books themselves are just the almost accidental occasion for a meditation on some aspect 
of contemporary culture. And they brought to bear the sort of intellectual heritage that they inherited from the Scottish Enlightenment, which is where we began. They brought to bear on, sorry, its empirical, inductive approach to an encyclopedic range of ideas and disciplines. And they drew on its conjectural or philosophical historicism, and they drew on its political economic priorities at every point. And it gave them these, the, the characteristic kind of historico-cultural review that they made, uh, as I say, their own, that they made distinctive at the time. And then finally, and I'll finish on this note, because in one sense I'm anticipating that everybody in this room, if they know anything at all about the Edinburgh Review, will know about its critical severity. The first thing that people usually learn about the Edinburgh Review is that it said to Wordsworth that this would never do. Um, and it's interesting that, 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 that in the, in the uh, National Portrait Gallery in London, uh, under uh, the portrait of Francis Jeffrey, the first thing that's recalled is, of course, the fact that he said to Wordsworth that this would never do. It was uh, the rather infamous review of Wordsworth's The Excursion in 1814 uh, that began with that expression. But beyond that, of course, it, uh, or that is just a sort of symbolic gesture. And what it stands for is uh, the, the, kind of, the kind of almost, for many people, indiscriminate severity that characterised its approach uh, to particularly our definition of literature, but by and large, uh, its approach to anything, uh, any, any particular kind of cultural or intellectual endeavour. The judge stands condemned when the guilty are acquitted. That was its, again, infamous motto, that the judge stands condemned when the guilty are acquitted. And uh, this has become associated with the review itself. And indeed, the critical severity uh, is quite, or the accusation, I should say, is quite justified. And it's something that all the other reviews in the early 19th century picked up on and picked up on very quickly, to the, to the extent that we recognise the period, the Romantic period, as an especially conflicted, an especially antagonistic period within literary culture. Though I think we should also always bear in mind that literary culture has had its antagonisms. It's not something that they invented in 1802. Um, but critical severity was indeed a part of it, and it was a part, ultimately, of, ironically, the success of the journal itself. What we call literature, I'll finish on this point, what we call literature, as we're celebrating 250 years. While it was respected by the Edinburgh, as I suggested before, was seen as only one endeavour among many. And no less than other social institutions, literature was subjected to historical scrutiny and a degree of demystification in the Edinburgh that anticipates the ideological criticism of the last 30 
or 40 years. The often antagonistic attitude taken by the Edinburgh and by other 19th century reviews played a crucial role in reinforcing the self-consciousness of authorship in the Romantic period and a crucial role in helping to precipitate some resilient Romantic myths, not the least things like the murder of John Keats. Indeed, it was the manifestly rapid development of competitive commercial publishing and the proliferation of commercially viable publications like the periodical that became symbolic in that way. It was the, <coughs> sorry, it was the rapid development um, that helped to precipitate the romantic redefinition and valorization of literature itself. <coughs> At least as a kind of uniquely gifted imaginative activity, what we think of in our post-romantic world as literature, creative literature, imaginative literature. It was the kind, the kinds of public, sort of publication and cultural conditions that literature was meeting in the early 19th century through and by the reviews that forced it into a kind of self-conscious redefinition and encouraged, ultimately, the establishment of English literature as a distinct academic discipline. So to that extent, our Edinburgh Review, or the relationship between our Edinburgh Review, the 1802 Edinburgh Review, and English literature, was one of a kind of mutual suspicion, which was curiously, ironically, if you like, formative. We have English literature because English literature was forced to redefine itself in the face of the kind of antagonism that was displayed by periodicals like the Edinburgh Review. I'm going to leave it there. Okay. Thank you very much, Will. Um, I really enjoyed that. Um, I'm not going to be as focused and as articulate as that. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you now. I've been introduced as a colossal tripod. I'm, I'm, I'm certain I'm not a you know a historian of the recent Edinburgh Review. Um, um, I should say, I mean, just one thing I've learned is I'll need to uh, get in touch with Creative Scotland and demand two hundred thousand a year um, on Monday morning. <laughs> Relatively, relatively new to the job. I'm working on the fourth issue, um, and the reality of being an editor is it's a very full-on, practical, sleeves rolled up, sort of helter-skelter kind of thing to do. Um, so, if uh, this talk here is very um, disorganised and um, chaotic, that just reflects accurately the experience of being an editor. Um, but I am pleased to have uh, an opportunity to um, step back and reflect on partially on what it is right now, but perhaps more so what it mm, might be and what it possibly should be in the, um, the future and in a realistic sense, what might be in the, in the near future. Um, I'm very, very interested in hearing people's views on that. Um, and hopefully, I'm not going to talk that long, and hopefully we can have a... Um, a chat quite soon about um, leading on from 
kind of the differences of what Adam Review is now compared to um, the, the, the classic era as, as set out by Wilder. Um, in saying of no information about the, um, the history of its, its recent incarnation, um, I mean, the last one was 133. So 134 comes out in May. Issue number one of the new Edinburgh Review came out in 1969. Um, and it has run continuously since then. There was a name change in 1984 with issue 67, and they changed the name from New Edinburgh Review to Edinburgh Review. Uh, just on here, Sam, and I believe that was the work of Cairns Craig. Um, the magazine is housed by the university. It's in Bethlehem Place, um, a couple of doors down from where Jeffrey's um, hung out. Um, it was possibly slightly opportunistic. You know, here's a brand name. Let's face it, um, Edinburgh Review. But I think you know, if, why on earth not do that? I mean, it was. Um, it, it, um, I think it was more than just the spiritual air to um, the classic historical Edinburgh Review. And again, I think my sense of what the thing should be um, is um, it was very dictated by the sense of the heritage um, of the Edinburgh Review back in the day. Um, that motto was, was the judge stands condemned, condemned when the guilty, yeah. when the guilty yeah. is acquitted. Yes, and that was in Latin, wasn't it? Yeah, due to extend that one. In 1969, issue number one, I got a new motto, which was um, <laughs> to gather all the rays of culture into one. <laughs> so you can see that the drugs were a lot better in 1969, <laughs> but you can also possibly see that it didn't really, that didn't really facilitate critical severity or, or, or any critical um, sense of scrutiny whatsoever. Alan, I have to, I have to add at this stage, yeah. Sidney Smith's original motto was we cultivate literature on a little oatmeal. <laughs> he suggested that, that that should be the, the motto, but he was censored. Okay. Um, in the relatively recent past, there have been a great many editors of the Edinburgh Review, um, and it is one of the things that I think, you know, it, can I just... Uh, from the early 1980s. You know, it's gone through different physical manifestations, even though it's been a continuous run from issue one to issue 133. Um, it has looked different and it has tried different things as it's gone from editor to editor. Um, and that's one of the things that's informing the sort of thing that I sort of uh, bring up for discussion in the next 10 minutes. Um, some Colleagues from the university have been um, editors, Robert Allen Jameson, Alex Thompson. Um, just from becoming editor, talking around with Peter Kravitz, seems to be a, a name everybody remembers fondly. I think his editorship just you know, it, um, tied in with a, a, a great boom in Renaissance in Scottish literature. So he's the first to publish a lot of people um, who are now very well established names. Um, I think yeah, that's you know one of the things I'd like to talk about is to what extent maybe should the Edinburgh Review have an identity 
above and beyond who's which current editor that you know the incumbent editor and uh, to what extent would that be a very good thing for it and I just, I've taken on the editorship with a sense of responsibility that way but I still you know but that also sort of um, the proviso to that is I don't think that identity is the um, uh, I think that what that identity might be is something that has yet to be established um, and that's again something I'd like to talk about I should say I mean Literary editors, literary magazines, literary journals. I mean, just from, uh, you know, I, I write poetry. I was a, a young man on trying to set out in the poetry world. I was uh, incredibly struck by how miserable and aggressively disconsolate editors of magazines were. I mean, awful people. <coughs> you know, first meeting some in Belfast and says, "I've got some poetry. Would you like to see it?" And I just instead of being pleased, they were clearly restraining themselves from punching me in the face. <laughs> um, so I will, you know, the, the one, I haven't, I've got haphazard notes, but the main note to myself is don't grumble and don't be miserable. Uh, <laughs> in saying that, um, I mean, the, the, the reality of um, the 21st century literary um, magazine or cultural journal or whatever um, is a stark financial sort of um, sense of pressure on taking up the editorship. I, you know, given the massive heritage of the name, um, it is um, startling the precariousness of the thing's existence right now. Um, so, you know, I don't think there's one literary uh, editor in the world who wouldn't say if there's subscriptions match the submissions would be millionaires but um, it is something to keep in mind that one likes to talk about ideals of what the perfect literary journal might be but one has to be um, focused on how the thing might survive um, at, at the same time and becoming an editor I mean so it's faced with these two things I mean how do you live up to the ma massive heritage the incredible copious richness and how does one address the harsh financial reality um, confronting the, the, let's call it a magazine rather than a journal, the magazine. And I think I believe in keeping things simple. The answer to both is just make it brilliant, make sure that it's a fantastic thing. So the question is, what constitutes a fantastic literary journal? Um, I think what one needs to talk about is what should a literary journal be? right now today and what it might have most usefully be and then within that context and well what might since we're all here in Edinburgh I think it's, it's a collective thing this is our magazine uh, this is something that everybody associated with the university with Edinburgh with Scotland should be proud of um, what would be the best thing for this magazine uh, within that understanding of what magazines are meant to be doing these days um, Two quick things about practicalities. For all the precariousness, um, you know, the, universe, the university generously houses the magazine, so we have that to our credit. We've got an office with free rent. Um, I should point out from the, the 200 grand a year thing, I mean, I'm the, I, I think the first editor um, who has taken on the editorship as part of um, a sort of a duties as a lecturer within the English department here. And something else I'm very conscious of, and, uh, and perhaps is worth talking about. Um, 
because of um, well, I'll, I'll move. I'll come back to that point in a second. Um, on, in terms of practicalities, and you know, what one is facing the same time. What you know, what which books should we review? Who should we get to write essays? But you're also thinking of, um, you know, about the subscription um, list at the same time. Just imagining the dream is that it will get bigger and, uh, and bigger, um, so that the the, um, the the magazine's existence will be more. Um, uh, Protected against contingencies, um, and I was uh, the one thing that did take me by surprise in coming in was the pressure for to be an electronic journal. Um, uh, uh, bef so before one even begins, just the, the commitment to be in print is absolutely defining for the magazine, um, and even there, and, and I mean, I just didn't think about it that long. I said, no, it needs to be in print, and we won't be an e-journal. Um, is defining you immediately. Um, I don't want to talk about practicalities, I'd rather talk about the ideals, but that is one that uh, is, is very serious. I don't know how long the journal can survive holding out from becoming an e-text as well. Um, it's, it strikes me, I mean, immediately, you know, we said, well, if you go uh, into an electronic version, more people will read it. Um, and I did well on it, it seemed to me that was a lie. <laughs> um, you know, just the imperialism of technologies and you have to do it, you have to do it. I mean, who's reading this? You know, for the people who do subscribe, they presumably are people who subscribe at least to a few more who already read probably, you know, uh, at a, a range of literature themselves, probably literary lovers. Um, who will be spending money on poetry books, novels, who will be reading the internet, who will already be keeping their eye on many, many other journals. And it seems to me that the, um, you're, 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 you're um, defining yourself through um, circumscribing what you might do, the idea of having a coherent sort of ideology. Is that, that rather than compete with the internet, that this is something that, you know, kind of like a poetry book or a novel that, you know, once the computer's turned off, that one will go to a quiet corner of a room and read, and that is the way it must be. And I think the um, electronic journals are modeling themselves on that, um, uh, uh, you know, that there will be an uh, 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 infinite choice in that one won't necessarily read um, too much of something before clicking again and clicking again. And it is a case of um, saying, well, we'll be the opposite of that. Uh, we'll be a, a, a slow read. Um, then maybe somebody will have it by their bedside and pick it up. And, uh, and, and um, certainly one reads a journal like this. You know, you read the contents and you, and you jump about a bit. But it is in a much slower um, way. So possibly... We can't be non-electronic forever. We have got an excellent website now, thanks to um, assistant editor Lindsay May here. Um, but we're going to fight to be old-fashioned and be in print, and I think that starts to define um, the, the setting down of, of a new identity for, for the magazine. But it, you know, it gets one to think about who is the readership. So, and, and, you know, it's, it's not very well to sit in a university or in the, the office of a magazine and to say, this is what we must do. But um, it does, um, I don't know to what extent 
Jeffrey, etc., would have sat down and worried about what the readers were all thinking the time. all the time. All the time. Um, it's not so much. Uh, it's just who who are the readers and what do they want? It has to be in the mix. So I'll, I'll be fair, I've had a series of interrelated questions that I sort of asked myself and taken this up and sort of continue to ask myself. Um, first question is probably how academic should the thing be? Um, a second question is probably how Scottish should the thing be? A third question is how literary should it be with the, the balance there being, you know, the, does it go interdisciplinary? Is it a cultural journal? Or do we specialise and say, no, it is, um, this is primarily fiction and, um, and, and poetry and, and, and book reviews, uh, you know, reviews of novels and poems. Um, and also in terms of how literary it should be, you know, the, the balance between, because um, now it is, uh, our main function of the book is to present new writing. Um, so we have poems and we have fiction, and to be honest, that's the first thing I look to, and then we have articles and then we have a book review section at the end. What the balance should be there um, between, um, this is a book that people will look to to see who the new writers are, or what the writers we already know are doing recently, um, and to what extent do we pick the book up, hoping for cultural authority, coherent ide ideology, antagonistic fighting talk, um, this will not do, etc. <laughs> um, and again, the other, th that question I've already asked, I mean, to what extent would it be better if um, this magazine had a coherent sort of re-establishment of a coherent sort of ideology or set of principles that could be taken on? And to what extent could it, could it expand um, in the future? So I think a lot of those things are interrelated. I am slightly worried waffling, but the academic question, um, again, because there's been so many editors, you go through the last um, even 15 years, you can see you know, the difference between Alex Thompson as editor and Robert Allen Jameson as an editor is quite marked. Um, it's, it's moved in various directions quite rapidly in a sort of disorientating um, manner. Whenever I took over as editor, as a member of the English department, I had emails and people, um, you know, just in casual conversations. So this was just going to, you know, you're going to push towards that idea that this should be a refereed academic journal, um, and I had no intention of that, and I have no intention of that. But it was interesting that that was, you know, seen as a possibility. Um, I've had I've approached novelists and poets, and would you like to write um, for the Edinburgh Review? And they turned around and said, "Well, surely that's an academic journal." I've approached academics asking would they write an essay, and they said, well, "Surely that's just for creative writing." So I mean, we are in a um, a bit of a middle of. I don't think it's a middle of nowhere. I, I actually think it's helping. Um, uh, you know, it, it more deeply leads to the question of I mean, the, the whole 25th, we're 25 years old, we're 250 years old, the whole anniversary, I mean, the leading theme really has been this word, belle lettre. Um, what's the difference between a review and an academic piece of scholarly writing? The review is more opinionated, more off the cuff, um, more subjective, more bitchy perhaps. 
Um, the scholarly article, let's say, is grounded in um, proving its own sort of points and, uh, and establishing an argument with a lot of backup. You know, the, you don't know what the difference is. It seems to be the two aspects of the same thing. I mean, the good review gets its authority from not being mere, not seeming like mere opinion, but seeming like a, a, a opinion that's extremely well grounded in um, some, within the, the piece of writing, within a very sort of short space, it establishes its own authority. Um, the idea of personal subjective engagement that one expects of a review, um, let's face it, academic writing is dead without that. So, I mean, I think it's more of a continuum between the two. Um, in the New York article coming up, 134 will be published in May. I've gone with um, uh, a colleague from Glasgow called Willie May. as a very nice piece on the short stories of Muriel Sparkin. There's 83 footnotes to it, or endnotes to it. It's caused my assistant editor you know, an identity crisis because it, we'd established that we wouldn't have you know, footnoted academic um, articles. Um, we would just have essays, and uh, mostly would have one or two bibliographic pieces. In fact, Willie May, um, Willie Mealy had a, a piece in the last issue on the Peter Mullen film called Nod Neds, Nods, Neds, which had 54 um, footnotes, and I had a big argument about whether this should be there or not. Um, but uh, it's so, so my, my attitude is clearly quite relaxed. I mean, if the essay comes with footnotes and it's good enough, it goes in. Although the house style is broadly, it doesn't have footnotes. I don't think um, it has to be one or the other. Um, by and large, if you're looking for good writing, and that is what one is looking for, or else how would you make the thing good and something that people want to read, one has to be aware that there's many, many, many different forms. And I think the what, what one gets from a journal, the pleasure of it is its miscellaneous character, um, rather than, you know, you will get something surprising, you know, there will be an eclectic jumble of things, that is its pleasure. Um, so moving from a reasonably scholarly article to maybe a piece of scabrous um, subjective polemic is, I think, what one should be aiming for, rather than a, um, a deadening absolute coherence in terms of methodology or anything like that. But clearly, the, I, I do believe, and I'm sure nobody in the room would argue, the thing would die a very, very quick death in terms of its potential and what the, the, the idea of the, you know, the heritage of um, here is a, uh, a journal that will respond to contemporary writing and, and hopefully with some bite when necessary that um, a, a scholarly um, magazine would, would, would completely crumble its, its identity. How Scottish should it be? Um, I thought it was very, very interesting, this the idea of this, this, that from the start it was to be cosmopolitan with um, more than one eye in London and Paris, and the idea that um, marginalised in Edinburgh, this is actually to its great advantage. Um, obviously, well, I think obviously th things have changed. Um, and 
really, I don't, I don't even believe in the whole idea of sensors and peripheries anymore. We're here, so London, by definition, is on the periphery, um, and so is Paris and New York. The um, basically, I've resisted the idea that it should be um, one hundred percent Scottish. But at the same time, I've upped the parochialism, I feel, and certainly that's an intention. Again, it's about balances. I don't think any, um, the, the idea of being rooted in a locale, I think that the sensible approach is that it's, it's concentric circles. This is, this is an Edinburgh magazine, and Scotland is very much, it's the first thing on its radar. I've moved that out, I mean, I'm an Irish poet, so just, you know, Ireland is going to be on the radar. And I think, you know, the generic north, the north of England, but that's not to um, occlude the south of England or America or the rest of the world. And it's not necessarily always in that order. But I think um, if the magazine is to have a sensible, coherent identity, it needs to have at least that, that open commitment to um, where it's located and to its immediate culture, on the understanding that that can be done in a cosmopolitan, um, inter internationally informed way. In other words, sometimes Scottish culture needs lots of articles about um, international literature, and sometimes that you know sometimes local writers need need a place, and it's right and proper that the Edinburgh Review will be a place for them. Um, One takes into consideration not so much who the competitors, who the brethren are. There's already Scottish Literary Review, Scottish Review of Books, Gutter Magazine, and I think it's um, they all have different um, priorities and different styles. My my own says at the Edinburgh Review, its best way forward is to be slightly more international and cosmopolitan than most of them. And it will be uh, to great benefit to Scottish writing if new Scottish writers are brought into that sort of, um, that, that sort of context. How literary should it be? Should it be a cultural magazine? Or should it be a literature with a capital L magazine? Um, again, it's, it's, it's been all sorts of different things, especially in its most recent history. Clearly, Nowadays, it would be um, to the idea to try and cover all of those bases um, um, would be foolhardy. I'm sure you'd agree um, that um, it's not that one believes that literature lives in a bubble and there shouldn't be essays on um, engineering or forestry or whatever in there as well. Um, but it would be a, a fast, a, 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 you know, fast track to absolute chaos and madness, I think. Um, the one caveat is that uh, in the past it's been it's used its Scottishness to say that we can talk about all things Scottish, so that it gets away with an eclectic cultural provenance. It's uh, at certain times at certain times in its recent past it's described itself as being interested in Scottish historical and philosophical ideas. Actually, before it's been a literary magazine. Um, I very much, um, again, the uh, instinctual sort of decision as soon as I took it up is that this is going to become, a, you know, first and foremost, a literary magazine with a capital L. Um, and that, um, so you've got this balance. It is sort of 
committed to Scotland, but it's international. But it's also committed to literature, and so that um, the, the upshot is we've started um, refusing historical um, and geographical essays about the Highlands uh, and Scotland. And um, I've had complaints because I've put in an essay, say, about David Foster Wallace rather than um, a piece about ecological piece about um, Glenn Gorns. Um, and that's something prepared to take in the chin. Um, the, with it, on the understanding that the miscellaneity can be good, um, that it also needs it needs focused miscellaneity, and I, I just believe that it should be a literary magazine. The, the idea of authority, um, and uh, um, com comes into this as well. Um, you know, the, the other focus, the other purpose of something like the Edinburgh Review is to counteract the extent to which marketing dominates um, literary reviewery and, uh, and like magazines. And even somewhere as uh, August and otherwise excellent as The Guardian, you know, there are certain names that come up, you know, in, in bookshops. Publishers can buy the Book of the Month slot and all the rest of it. But resolutely, our resolute independence is our one is one element where we can clutch hold of you know the, the, the critical severity is another thing again but at least you know critically independent is, is very important um, critical independence is very important the severity I find a bit tiresome sometimes I mean I one doesn't want blandness is the last thing one wants and I searched out particularly the review section. I searched out people who I knew were a bit um, prickly as reviewers for the first couple of reviews, and, it, and a couple of came through. You know, other people who otherwise been very, very well reviewed got sort of slightly negative ones in the review, and it, and it worked. People started emailing in saying, "Oh, this is good." And um, but by the third issue, I was bored. I was just all of a sudden Sean O'Brien as useless, <laughs> and uh, everybody was just a tosser and um, useless, and uh, you know. The one quickly bores of that and says, you know, actually the best review has been to say what's good, um, mm. often what's what's bad. Maybe sometimes things have to be spelt out in their badness when the rest of the world is praising it as as good. But um, there there is a balance there, and the, the articles, the idea that this there there will be articles of fighting talk is something I'm innately attracted to, and I think it will be it needs to be the energy of a review like this. But it quickly became apparent that 150 pages of fighting talk is very, very, very boring. So it's a matter of, again, back to that eclecticism, and mis you know, it's a balanced focus miscellaneity of um, we get, hopefully we shall have anger and passionate pieces, but then we also need um, uh, um, something less severe by page 23. Um, in terms of the being a literary magazine, and I mean in terms of publishing poems, novels. Um, this is another sort of pressure area to an extent because you one one gets lots and lots of submissions. When I just looked at Guffer magazine um, this morning, thinking about this, they publish an awful lot more. Um, you know, we, we're relatively. Um, it was 130 to 140 pages, but compared to other like magazines, we're publishing a lot less. The idea of discrimination 
is uh, a quieter way of exercising one's critical severity. Um, there, there's different things that the it seems to be the, the, the review could do. Um, I was instinctually wary, of course I'm a creative writing tutor, of it becoming a just the the house of creative writing in Edinburgh, and there's a factory for the many, many um, students that come through. Um, so one becomes wary of that. At the same time, one is aware that there's some fantastic, absolutely brilliant writing being done, so one doesn't want to just close the door either. And at some point, you know, one has to be understanding of how other people are viewing um, you, but at other times you have to sort of um, uh, just assert, well, we, we're making the, the call here, this is what's good. Um, this is, from what we can perceive, the, the best that's there, certainly in Scotland and, and further afield. There's a balance between getting big names in. Uh, it was interesting to hear that that was on the um, the menu right in 1802. Um, that would be, you know, Wordsworth, etc., who are being reviewed and not um, unknowns. Um, part of that is um, hopefully with a mind to those financial realities, if you, if you have a couple of names that people recognise on the back of your book, it may get people to um, pick it up who otherwise wouldn't. Um, but also, I mean, it would be uh, 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 a hardly philosophy would say we're only interested in new un un undiscovered writers and not what uh, writers who have been around for 30, 40 years are, are doing in the present time. But certainly the idea of uncovering the next James Cohen, the next Alistair Gray, is something that the, the, the Edinburgh Review lives for. Um, and I hope I've got the, getting the balance right. But I think what, you know, one slightly uh, pompous thing to say, which I think you know, is the Edinburgh Review's um, strength. It's, it's not, I have to really, really like the gutter, and I think it's very, very important to Scottish literature that it exists, but there is, a higher level of quality control than the Edinburgh Review, I think, and there, and there will be, because we publish less. So we're probably turning down a lot more. But hopefully that means it means more to the young writers as they get in it. Um, and hopefully, the um, I'm not saying that everything in the Edinburgh Review is a, is a masterpiece, but um, there's a lot less rough edges than there are in other magazines. And I think it's you know, one of the, pro it's not a, one of the realities is there are just an absolute plethora of similar publications out there. So we, you know, we define ourselves by keeping the, 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 the level high to an extent. Hopefully, also our taste is a broad church, and there's there's lots of other there's lots and lots of ways in which a piece of writing can be good. I mean, to stay open to that. But again, it's so it's, it's not sort of coming out with boxing gloves saying everything is rubbish all the time, but quietly just by, um, you know rather than just the moaning about how bad everything else is, actually just presenting the stuff that's good is another form of critical severity, mm -hmm. I, I believe. <coughs> Even to what extent should there be an identity outside of the incumbent editor? I mean, it, it strikes me a lot of um, these sorts of generals have been at their best when they... Uh, a group of people have come together like-minded, and clearly 1802 is a classic example. But through, um, 
you know, either in terms of a style or in terms of a, a generation, you know, this is the magazine where beat writers publish at this time in this place in America. Here's the writers where angry young men of Britain in the 1950s published or whatever. And, um, that's something that um, is an attractive proposition. In other words, um, could the Edinburgh Review um, take up not just an ideological position but a a literary stylistic sort of a position and say we, we you know start shooting down the old dinosaurs and talk up sort of here's the new youth writing or something like that I was open to that for a while when I came in but it struck me that there's nothing in um, contemporary literature that was coherently um, worth fighting for to that respect I believe you know the current generation my generation generation above are sort of I think the Bloomian turn is epigonic rather than um, uh, uh, abrasively antagonistic towards the literary forefathers. So, and, and, and on reflection, it made me think, well, it's better not, because that, that, my definition is finite, and what happens once it all falls apart, or the, the movement, if there had been a movement to, to pin the review to, um, once it runs out of steam, the review needs to go on. But I, so how does one establish that identity? With I just felt instinctively that the the idea of manifestos and stuff would be limiting. So again, it's, it's hopefully just the a, a a kind of pragmatic sort of focus, uh, a, a consistency of approach in terms of quality, in terms of the range of materials. But that idea that it is Scottish, but it's also international, will slowly start to develop its own identity. That hopefully. Um, when I'm finished, other people will take on rather than changing altogether. This would be nice and important, possibly, if the thing could have a steady run in one shape and with one sort of idea of focused miscellaneity um, for a, and I'm in 10, 15 years rather than three or four. And I shall um, give up. Thank you very much for listening. to invite you to talk more to each other, not least about the $200,000 salary question. I'm not got much to share about it. Before moving on to that, are any questions of mine? There must be questions from around the room from practitioners, prickly critics in the making. Poets have been rejected or accepted. Others who have views about what journals should have done in 1802 of what they should be doing 250 years. Who wants to start? No, we get um, um, we, have, uh, we apply each year to what's now Creative Scotland, and it wouldn't exist without the money that's get. It covers about, in theory, about um, half to a third of the yearly cost comes from that. So if if we were just down to subscriptions, we'd have enough to fund about half or a third of ourselves. So the ideal is needs to be to build that up. So that we're not so dependent, because you know, obviously, the year-on-year -year threats there that Creative Scotland type of funding mightn't be. I mean, we're just overly dependent on it, and even then, it's you know, obviously, it's not forget the two hundred thousand for the editor, but the idea of paying people good money, one can't compete with the LRB, the TLS, or the Guardian on a Saturday. And the reality is, freelance writers who you might otherwise be very keen on need money. 
academics are very busy. So the idea of having the subscriptions, A, so we're not going to be just shut down by the Arts Council whenever um, they decide it on a whim, but also, you know, it's, it's that sort of circle, more money to pay better people, then more subscriptions get reading it as well. And, and it'd be nice to give more money to the young, struggling writers, etc. as well. Can I ask you one which is not so much for Will as, as from Will, and, and I've directed, I guess, at, at Alan in the contemporary bit. I was trying to recall, Will, that was it Sidney Smith said the great advantage of the Edinburgh Review mm. is its freedom from Southern wit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you actually interpreted that as being an opportunity for antagonism, but I wonder if we shouldn't just read the word as it stands, that it is actually a genuine freedom that there is. very interesting to see as you moved on, Alan, that you saw the Edinburgh role of the current Edinburgh Review as being to serve, at least in part, local Scottish culture. That's what yeah. the Edinburgh bit now means. Whereas in 1802, despite the fact that Burns was hanging around and Ossian was up the road, as it were, there was a lot of opportunity locally, but they perceived their task to be in a distantiated position from London, which improved the objectivity with which mm. they could critique that major culture. I just wondered if either of you wanted to reflect on what seems a little bit of a difference of phase between those mm. two ambitions. Mm. Well, I was struck by this idea of that you know the, the review relies on the idea that there is a healthy culture. Um, mm. It's, 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 I mean, I think it, antagonism is probably um, the, the, the wrong word. And I think it's appropriate, particularly in the political economic environment that we're talking about, that something like competitive rather than antagonistic, though I think it, it frequently modulates into a kind of, of antagonism. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's destructive. It can, in fact, be. You know, and the tension that we're, that we're talking about there, the implicit and explicit tension, uh, doesn't have to be just a destructive thing. I think that, that a part of the, the, the self-consciousness of the Edinburgh Review, the fact that it kept its name Edinburgh Review, and there was a threat in 1807 that it would lose the Edinburgh uh, out of its title, and uh, a number of them were desperate to keep it for what it symbolised there. And that is, in a sense, it, it involved. And one thing that we, have, that, we, that we have to understand about the 18th and the early 19th century, it was intensely competitive, and it was intensely culturally competitive. When, when the original Edinburgh Review started up, it was, of course, it was to promote learning, as it was called, in, in Scotland, but it was also to promote learning in relation to what was going on in the rest, and it was, it was acutely conscious of what was going on in the rest of the world, and it was, beyond that, competitive with, and saw itself as competitive with. But that wasn't... We're talking about Adam Smith here. Competition isn't not necessarily a bad thing. Competition is the healthiest kind of respect you can pay to other people. You compete with them, because that's, what, that's the way that you sort of generate quality and, and, and quantity. Uh, and I think from that point, that consciousness doesn't have to be aggressive in that. Sorry. No, I mean, I think the idea of there's just so much culture there and there's so many forums yeah. and it's accepted that you click, 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 click and they all coexist, that that competition is actually fatally disappearing mm. and that is a big problem. Because, mm. um, you know, it's a, 
wouldn't want the journal to be all fighting talk, but it's actually proving difficult to get anybody mm. fired up. I mean, a lot of things are coming in. And be, uh, uh, you know, um, there's a placidness and blandness the way people are seeing culture um, across the board, I think. And I just think it's, there's, um, it's accepted that you, you take this, you take that, you take that, and there's not a need to sort of argue yeah. the case. I mean, you, you ended with the idea that, you know, it's conflicted culture and there should be yes. antagonism and stuff. And I think um, that's, nobody, I think, believes for a second that it's not, we don't live in a conflicted, problematic culture, but the idea that somebody needs to stand up and um, raise, yeah. the, raise the fist and, and have focused articulation about problems in a consistent, coherent manner is, is disappearing. And that possibly is, you know, a role of the Edinburgh Review, even though I don't see it, is it needs to try and do what mm. those guys did or at all. But I don't think no. it would be possible, but an element of it. It makes you realise that the department itself probably owes something to a unique situation in which literary and political discourse and indeed the study of beekeeping as well should yeah, as yeah. all existed in some form of a mutually reinforcing yeah. sense of importance, which is not probably really the case within literary studies to that extent now, I mean it should be, but we're not actually convinced that we sit at the centre of a culture whose moral welfare we will determine through our imaginative acts, which I guess was much more the case in Edinburgh in 1802 than it is now. Yeah. And, and we owe our existence for 250 years perhaps to the energy that arose from that moment and has since branched and dissipated in other ways. Interesting, I think, that notion of the review. I'm, I, mean, I mean, we think of the review as reviewing books. Right? Yeah. Do I like this book? Do I not? You know, or what's working in this book? Or yeah. And it is true that negative reviews have a kind of thrilling, uh, it's kind of a blood sport. Yeah. You know? And so, <clears throat> and there's something sort of compelling about it, but one tires of it, it's true. Yeah, what is it? And you just think this blood is, sport, this is, this is just someone just showing off, yeah. you know, going for the, for, the, for the throat and so on. Yeah. But it occurs to me suddenly as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, that notion of back and forth. I remember um, going once to a panel at uh, <coughs> AWP in America, Associated Writing Program, yeah. and, which usually have a number of people on the panel, but, but for some reason a couple of people didn't show up one panel, so the, it was supposed to be on the future of poetry. Um, and so only two people showed up for this. We had a panel, there were a lot of people because Did they run? And Donald Liddell, uh -huh. uh, both really very funny, opinionated, articulate guys, yeah. and, and, and different, very different than their, their approach. And they, it was the most wonderful thing I ever saw at AWP because it was a true debate. Very goodwill and very, <laughs> very edged and really very funny. And they went back and forth. And I thought, this is a great format. Yeah. Um, and I've never seen it again at AWP. I think it's kind of brilliant. Yeah, sort of the debate. But I'm wondering, it suddenly occurs to me, could you have a review where, uh, you know, two takes on the same book? Yeah. But very different, and people kind of discussing it as opposed to someone just, you know, holding forth in whatever either pro or con. Yeah. And that that you know that kind of energy you're talking about, the sort of anti-blandness. Yeah. Component, I think, you know, I've never seen that 
I think, and you probably read now literary journals in a whole new light because <laughs> you're responsible for one, right? Yeah. So have you ever seen that format? No, I've, I've been wondering about how to engineer mm. something like that. And I it's, that um, really interesting. And interesting the also to the, to the person getting yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought about opening up letters page and asking, you know, if um, well, yeah, right to reply. Yeah. Yeah. But it's difficult to engineer within one issue because um, so that you're going to ask two writers to maybe correspond almost and then I accept that that will be published. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, or just pick two people that you know are polar opposites and get them to write about the same thing and see what happens. Yeah, I but, think that um, would be really intriguing. I have. I'd buy a journal that had that. Yeah. I, I would know like to. I, I couldn't predict it. I wouldn't know what the upshot is. Yeah. But I have a second question. Sure. It's more personal. How, how, how has editing, you know, putting on the editing hat, fitting it, how has that affected your own writing? I haven't written anything for two years. That <laughs> <laughs> took over about two years ago. Mm. Why? Well, <laughs> is it just the workload, or is it just kind of suddenly you're. It's a yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, that. I think the thing will be properly successful, like going back to what Alice was asking about, whenever it can afford to pay a full-time editor, I think. Um, there's three people on a team who have done it part-time, and it's, um, it, it, it could do with more. So it's, um, I mean, it's just, you know, one is in a busy job anyway, and possibly, I just finished a, a book two years ago, and was probably probably needed a break anyhow. So it's, I mean, I'm not saying it is all bad, but it's certainly, um, it just is a never-ending thing. So it's, it's not a matter of just putting yourself, in a way, at a distance from the whole process, because you now are in this really judgmental I, I mean, position. I, I took it on, hoping that it would be better for my writing, as opposed to being head of examinations or something, to the extent that one does these yeah. you know, jobs. As, as, yeah. um, so I was very pleased to take it on. And, I read. I spent four days reading through submissions this week because there's a bit less teaching. Just that happens this week in the, in the semester, and it, well, I, I, there was lots of madness there and stuff that easily dismissed. But oh, I read some fantastic. So it was a really good, rich week of reading, actually. So what follows then is a toughness of you know choosing people and negotiating this needs change, and that's very very time consuming. Um, that's where the problem is. But it's not all bad. It's not. Wouldn't say it's all good. Well, um, uh, I came very late. I'm sorry, and um, I know next to nothing about the subject. And you probably already covered to it or alluded to it, or many people, perhaps in this room, already deeply aware of uh, the history of the Edinburgh Review. But uh, could you just satisfy a, a personal query of mine? Um, for example, when, when Byron wrote, wrote English Bards and Scotch Reviewers, I mean, would he have been referring specifically to the then Edinburgh Review? Yes. And, it, and, and yes. Was, what was it because, or was it the fact that the then Edinburgh Review was well, sim simply um, uh, quite, uh, I, I, I mean, uh, quite critical and um, possibly severe, or was it that it had a particular conservative with a small c political stance or, or it's possible just to say a word about what the Edinburgh Review was like then and why it was so feared if that's not too strong a word I don't know 
Um, we did talk about about oh, its, its its critical severity. Now that's all right. And and Byron was a, was another victim of a very savage review by Henry Broom, of of uh, his hours of idleness. Uh, and he rewrote a poem that he was writing called English Bards and retitled it English Bards and Scotch Reviewers as a response to that. And so the subsequent versions of the poem were sort of folding his, his contempt for the Edinburgh Review and for what it had done to his poetry in the thing. But yes, it was a response. Yeah. Thank you. That's all right. Because <laughs> it, it created a, a, a curiously anomalous position for someone like Byron, who had been brought up in Scotland. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, 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 did, did it have a political colouring? Yes. It, yes. Been... Uh, but, but again, it was ironic because Byron shared a, uh, shared a number of political uh, attitudes and things with the reviewers themselves. One of the reasons that he was so upset was because he expected them to, to be responsive to, to his poetry precisely because of the fact that they were both Whigs and, and everybody would be. Uh, but in fact, they oh, showed him no, no sympathy. Now I, I know a bit more about it. Yeah. Thanks. Well, yeah. we all know a great deal more about him. I mean, I've got lots more reflections I'd like to share. And I think the, the idea for an argumentative piece is actually one I've used in academic journals. I think it's a great way to lecture, is actually I yeah. to argue with a colleague who yeah, yeah. We used to do. We used to. We used to always have two teachers in the honours classes in in Sydney for for that reason. So you could set up a kind of dialogue. And another completely random reflection is we tend to forget that in the late eighteenth century, other minor matters happened, such as the foundation not only of the Department of English Literature but of the United States. Yeah. So it was a long time actually when Scotland perceived itself peculiarly close to the United States culture and. I think the editor of that version of the New Edinburgh Review, James Campbell, who now works for the Times Literary Supplement, would have been quite happy to detach Scotland by extending perforations along the River Tweed, because most of the New Edinburgh Review in those days looked at the wits of Manhattan rather than the wits of, of London. Mm. Mm. So there's loads more things we could talk about, and, and I think we should do it over a glass of wine. I've been partly thinking over the last hour of a slightly more polite version of the word tripod, which I realise I was calling islands, which just fits a colossal tripod. I think, fortunately, I don't need to, but it must be evident to all of us what myriad-minded megalopods you have witnessed. <laughs> and I'm sure you'd want to join me in thanking, thanking them for all that wonderful work.